as you finish finding your place. Um, just want to remind the parents of high schoolers that it will be my privilege to meet with them today for what we once called uh, Teen Sunday. Perhaps there's a better name for that, but um, the first time that I met with the middle schoolers was a wonderful time, and I look forward to meeting with them again this afternoon with my trusty assistant, Jason McFedrich. Now, as Pastor Sam indicated, even in his prayer, Pastor Mark was unable to preach this morning. He's uh, struggling with tonsillitis. Please pray for him that he'll be able to get back to school this week and... He has already prepared the passage that was to come next, so I'm not going to um, embark upon that territory. He looks forward to preaching that the next Lord's Day. But it did seem good to me that we not depart from 1 Peter, at least entirely, but rather come back and take a closer look at a subject that I touched upon in the introductory sermon three weeks ago. In verse 1 of chapter 1, Peter refers to his readers as exiles. In chapter 2 and verse 11, he speaks of them as sojourners and exiles. In fact, in verse 9 preceding verse 11 that I've mentioned, he describes those of us who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. And I was seeking to answer the question three weeks ago, how did we become Sojourners. How did we become temporary residents, exiles, strangers, pilgrims on mission? And the answer to that question could be simply summarized in these words by the sovereign grace of God. And this is something the Apostle Peter begins his letter with. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 in particular, we saw together three weeks ago that salvation is something that God planned in eternity. It's something that God the Son purchased in time. It's something that the Holy Spirit applies in time. For what the Father planned, he planned in eternity, and we call that plan election. What the Son purchased in history, we call redemption. And what the Holy Spirit applies in time begins with regeneration. All of this, as I said, is made clear in verses 1 through 3. Although the order is a little bit different there because the Apostle Peter is speaking to us in terms of our personal experience. He refers to his readers as elect, according to the foreknowledge or the eternal love of God, in sanctification, that is, in the setting apart by the Spirit of God for 
obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with the blood. But putting that very simply, we may say this, God the Father chose us to be saved, that is forgiven. The Holy Spirit brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ who becomes for us our perfect atonement as well as our perfect righteousness. That's all found, as I said, in verses 1 through 3 of First Peter. Now, what I would like to do this morning in our time together is I want to expand upon this Trinitarian salvation. I want to develop it a little more fully. I want to show you in a better way from First Peter and from other portions of God's Word what this Trinitarian salvation is really about and how it works. For example, I have already said that it's planned in eternity by the Father, and the plan is called election. It's purchased in history by the Son, and the purchase is called redemption. It's applied in time, and the application is called regeneration, at least in its beginning. So you could say that my excursion this morning will be theological, I'm not going to deceive you about that. This message will be a bit more theological than normal. But an excursion, by definition, is usually a brief pleasure trip. It's a conscious, willful deviation or departure from a certain course. And we will come right back to it, God willing, next Lord's Day. But I purposely take this excursion because some of you who were very encouraged and helped also said... I need more understanding about this. Would you please expand upon this sometime? And I didn't dream that it would be so soon. So keep in mind that 1 Peter is an extremely practical book. It's designed to remind us who we are, why we're here, how we are to live as temporary residents, and what will get us through our trials and our suffering. But as the process unfolds in Peter's writing, he lays down for us really some amazing and profound theology. He's undergirding his teaching. He's not trying to be theological just to be theological. There are many doctrines taught in First Peter. I just went through the book again uh, yesterday, in fact, and I saw that there's the doctrine of election, trinity, regeneration, conversion, atonement, Perseverance, preservation, inspiration of Scripture, pre-existence of Christ, the doctrine of angels, the doctrine of the devil, the doctrine of heaven, the doctrine of the second coming, the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of resurrection, good teaching on marriage with regard to husbands and wives. So we could say the doctrine of marriage and a good deal of information about ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. He speaks to us in chapter 5 about elders and what elders should be. All of this is doctrinal instruction. It's massive. And yet it is intensely practical. But this morning, it is my purpose to expand on the sovereignty of God in our salvation. And to look again at this paradigm that salvation is something that was planned by the Father in eternity, purchased by the Son in history, 
applied by the Holy Spirit in time. Now, you've probably heard me say that three or four times, haven't you? And God willing, you'll hear me say it again because I want you to fix that in your mind. I actually thought about giving a little quiz, an audible quiz at the end of the sermon to see if you can remember these things. I'm going to say it again. Salvation is something that was planned by God the Father in eternity. The plan is called election. Salvation is something that was purchased in history by the Son. The plan that purchase is called redemption. Salvation is something that is applied in time by the Holy Spirit. And that application begins with regeneration. So let's look at those, those things for just a few moments together. I'm going to spend most of my time on the doctrine of election. Now, could I just say a word of, uh, <clears throat> I hope, kindness and encouragement at the outset of this? Election can be a very um, controversial debated, divisive subject. And in no way do I want to contribute to that. And I hope that you will see in my demeanor and hear in my voice a spirit of genuine love and humility and graciousness as I seek to open up for us again this wonderful teaching of God's Word. And for starters, I just want to remind any of you who may struggle with this, And it's not wrong to struggle with it. I think we all had to struggle with this. Some of us are still struggling. That it is a biblical term. Election is in the Bible. In fact, the word elect or election in its various forms is found some 55 times in the New Testament. And we all know that an election means nothing if it doesn't mean choosing from options. We're soon to elect a new president. And as we cast our vote, we will vote for the person that among the alternatives we believe would best serve the cause of God in this world. That's a Christian perspective. That's why we want the two men in our church who are running for political office to obtain those offices so that they can assert their Christian influence on government, of which we've been hearing lately. But election, by definition, is choosing among options. It is a biblical word. In fact, it's found already in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect... The Greek word is electois. But then when you come to chapter 2 and verse 4, the Apostle Peter is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the ultimate person whom God has chosen and everyone else is chosen in him. And it says in verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen. It's the same word. It's electon. And referring to the Lord Jesus again in verse 6, he speaks of him as chosen, electon. And then we come into this election for the second time in verse 9. Would you notice, please, verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen race. And it's the word electe. These are just various forms of the same word. Chosen. 
That's who we are. We are the chosen of God. We can't deny that. That's what Peter calls us. He says we are elect exiles. We are a chosen race. Now, what I would like you to do is go with me for a moment to Exodus chapter 19. And I want you to see that that is also what God called his people in the Old Testament. So if you go, please, to Exodus 19. This is a very strategic passage for our understanding. And I want you to notice with me verses 5 and 6. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. God is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You can see this is a conditional covenant. Obedience is essential. But he describes those who would obey him and be faithful to the covenant as his treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now just stay there for a moment, but listen again to the words of Peter. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Sound familiar? Did you notice anything in Exodus 19 that is similar to 1 Peter chapter 2? Surely you did. Because in Exodus 19, he makes reference to priests. In 1 Peter 2, he calls them a royal priesthood. In Exodus 19, he speaks of a holy nation. In 1 Peter 2, 9, he speaks of a holy nation. In Exodus 19, he speaks about his treasured possession among all the peoples. And in 1 Peter 2, he describes us as a people for his own possession. Now, why did I take us to Exodus chapter 19? Because I wanted you to see how that nation became God's people. How did they become this priesthood? Well, you're still there. So notice again the verse, the word that um, God uses. I've got to come back to the passage. Notice in verse 5, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. How did they get to be that? Go back to verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. How did these people become the people of God? God says, I brought you to myself. That's how Israel became God's treasured people. He is talking about what theologians would describe as efficacious grace, that is, powerful grace, that is effective, that achieves the designed results. 
He did this with his mighty power. But then the question still lingers. Why? Why did he choose Israel? And here I want you to go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7 for just a moment. Deuteronomy 7. And notice with me verses 6 through 8. Deuteronomy 7. God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. See the same language? Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And here's where it becomes very helpful in answering the question, Why? Why, God? Why did you do that? And this is a question we should ask about ourselves. Why did you choose me? Listen to his answer to his people of the Old Testament. He says in verse 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Actually, all three things that Peter speaks about in the first three verses of chapter 1 are right here as well. God's people were a chosen people. How were they brought to him? By his mighty power. On what grounds? On the grounds that they had been redeemed. And you remember the symbolism of the last plague with the blood put on the doorposts. But did you hear him say, I didn't choose you because you were more in number? He speaks about setting his love upon them and choosing them. And all he can say is, I did it because the Lord loves you. The Lord loves you. Now, here's my question for any of you who might be wrestling and struggling and saying, I don't think I'm going to accept this. I don't really like this. Could God have chosen a different people? Were there no other peoples on the face of the earth? You have to say yes. You have to say yes, he could have. And here is my humble question for you. Again, I trust presented in a sweet, winsome way. Why didn't he set his love on the other people? And dear brothers and sisters, the only answer has to be for reasons known only to himself. But it surely wasn't because he saw in the Hebrew people something intrinsically better than he saw in the other peoples of the earth. Obviously not. Because who they really were became very, very evident in their history. They were a rebellious, unbelieving, disobedient, apostate, idolatrous 
people perpetually except for the remnant who were truly born again. He set his love upon them because he loved them. And that's like as far as we dare to go. You know, there's that wonderful passage in Romans chapter 8 which speaks of what we call the golden chain of God's redemptive acts, whom he predestined, he called, and whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he glorified, putting the certainty of our salvation in the past tense because it is a settled matter in the mind of God. But when we who are those people begin to ask ourselves questions like, why will I be glorified someday? We have to say, because I have been justified. And justification is a permanent pronouncement on the part of God. And then we say, but why was I justified? Because I was called. I was effectually and powerfully called by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word into fellowship with Jesus Christ. And I came to him. I took his invitation seriously. I responded to the call because it was efficacious. But why was I called? According to the text. Whom he predestined, he called. Again, do you really want to take that word out of the Bible? You know what destined means. We say it was destined to happen. That's the way we all use the word. What do you think happens when you put the prefix pre before it? And so we have to say, I was called because God set his unique and peculiar love upon me from all eternity. But then when we ask this question, why did God predestine me to be one of his children? We have to say, I don't know. I don't know. I know it was for nothing good in me. I know that. All I can say is because he chose to do so, he set his love upon me. Now, does that make you mad? Or does that make you glad? He didn't have to set his unique redemptive love on anyone. But he chose to save us. So what I'm trying to do is show you that 1 Peter 2, 9, which we will be getting to, speaks about us. And we are described as chosen. Chosen to be a race. Chosen to be a royal priesthood. Chosen to be a holy nation. Chosen to be the people of God. And we were chosen for the same reason. By the electing love of God that he manifested to his people during the Old Testament. That's why we have become who we are. Now, I just want to take a, a, an excursion from the excursion. I want to take a, a, just a real side trip, okay? A real small one, I should say. Now, <clears throat> we're back to 1 Peter 2 for a second. We, are you there? Go to 1 Peter 2. I want you to see this. Uh, we have seen who we are. Uh, we're exiles. We're sojourners, according to verse 11. But God has constituted us as some other things. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. 
We are a holy nation. We are a people. Now, what do I want you to appreciate before we leave this? I want you to appreciate, dear brothers and sisters, the corporate nature of God's saving work. I want you to notice the collective nature of these descriptions. What are you talking about? Well, race. Is race a person or is it a group of people? Have you ever heard of a race made up of one person? What is a priesthood? Is a priesthood one priest? Or is a priesthood a group of priests? What is a holy nation? Is a nation one person? What is a people? I'm a person, but I'm not a people. We are a people. And what I want you to appreciate is that God's redemptive purposes were always corporate in their intention. None of us has been saved to be and to remain an individual Christian. That's not what God had in mind for us. None of us, not a single one of us. We are rather a race, a priesthood, a nation, a people. And that's why, dear brothers and sisters, community is so important. Because community has always been God's intention. A race is a community. A priesthood is a community. A nation is a community. A people are a community. God has constituted us to be a community. That's what every local church is. Now, the church universal isn't really a community. It will be someday because we'll all finally get together at the same place. This is a community. And every local church was designed by God to be a community. And that's one of the reasons why your pastors have been emphasizing community. It isn't because we think it's neat and it's cool and it'll help build our church and it'll make us look good in the, in the, in the outside community. You know, that's what people do to make churches more attractive. No, we do this because it's biblical. God constituted the church to be a community. He intended us to be a community. And coming to church once a week to see one another does not a community make. A community, by definition, is a group of people who are involved with one another's lives. You see, dear ones, we need each other. That need was built into us. God is a social being. The three persons of the Trinity enjoyed the most intimate, blessed fellowship before time ever began that we could even try to conceive of. There was no lack of fellowship and social life among the three persons of the Trinity. They are social by their very nature, and we are created in their image. We are made in the image of God, and part of being made in the image of God is to be a social person. That's why we need community. That's why when God looked at Adam in the garden, he said it's not good for him to be alone. He's an image bearer of mine. He is to have social intercourse with a spouse. They are to have children. They are to become a family. And God's people are to become a family. And so, 
We are emphasizing community. And your pastors are thinking hard and reading carefully and discussing in strategic discussions of how we can better facilitate community in this church. Healthy churches are at least three-dimensional. They're upward, they're inward, and they're outward. And we have done fairly well at being upward. We've sought all these years to come to God and to worship Him and to hear from Him. And that's what we're doing right now. This is upward. But when we come together, we are working on the inward, the developing of love for one another, the ability that enables us to exhort one another, to encourage one another, and to pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, and help one another. The twenty seven one another's of the New Testament, most of which cannot be done here and after church in the 20 minutes that you'll linger to talk. The one another's require relationship. And we're, we're trying to work harder at how we might facilitate the deepening of community at Heritage Baptist Church. It is happening to some degree in, in some of our care groups. It's very encouraging. I can speak best of my own We love each other in our care group. We laugh together. We sometimes cry together. We share our hearts with each other. We open up our souls to one another, not in indiscreet ways. And we get together at other times than just the care group meetings twice a month. And we're helping each other. We had a long, long way to go. That's only one care group. And I'm sure it's true of many others as well, not trying to exalt the one that Cliff and I are leading. But just to make the point, we are experiencing what happens when your love goes deep and your care goes deeper and you get involved with one another's lives, God intended us to do this. And we have to keep working at it. And so those of you who are not a part of it, would you just please, just please, please say to yourself, this must be more important than I have conceived of. I really probably should do this. Pastor Ted is making a good point. God describes his people as a race, a priesthood, a nation, a people. Community is essential. I'm going to become a part of that. And you know what we've noticed in one of the books that we're reading is that um, the author says, many people say, you know, I just don't have time for that. You know, I know it's only twice a month, but it's just one more night. Our family is very, very busy. I just don't have time for it. And what he says is, anyone who has ever experienced the life-giving, life-transforming help and power of community will change his or her language and start saying, I can't miss it. I can't miss it. I can't miss it. It means so much to me. They mean so much to me. And so we have to work toward this because it's a biblical thing. Well, enough of my excursion from the excursion. So back to the subject of election. Um, I've given you the big picture. The father planned redemption in eternity. It's called election. The son purchased salvation in history. The purchase is called redemption. The Holy Spirit applies salvation in time. It's called regeneration. That's the big picture. Now, let me just say a little bit about election and even less about redemption and regeneration. What is election? What are we talking about? As if I hadn't made it quite clear enough yet. Let me just 
read for you some definitions of election. The first comes from our confession of faith. Those of mankind that are predestined to life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love, without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereto. It goes on to say, As God hath appointed the elect to glory, so he hath by his eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. That's one of the oldest Baptist confessions to be found anywhere on planet Earth, the 1689. But what of a more modern confession? This is how the Gospel Coalition defines the plan of salvation. We believe that from all eternity God determined in grace to save a great multitude of guilty sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation, and to this end foreknew them and chose them. We believe that God justifies and sanctifies those who, by grace, have faith in Jesus, and that he will one day glorify them, all to the praise of his glorious grace. In love, God commands and implores all people to repent and believe, having set his saving love on those he has chosen and having ordained Christ to be their redeemer. Here's how the Baptist faith and message, and he said, what's that? That's the Southern Baptist confession of faith. This is what it means to be a Southern Baptist, okay? Not that being a Southern Baptist is something great and glorious and that we'll turn in as a credential before we're uh, allowed to enter heaven. But, you know, I hear people say, well, I'm not a Southern Baptist. I don't believe that. Listen, this is the Baptist confession of faith. Election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. That's what Southern Baptists are supposed to believe. And here is the Bethlehem affirmation of faith put together by the elders of our sister church in Minneapolis. We believe that God's election is an unconditional act of free grace which was given through his son, Christ Jesus, before the world began. By this act, God chose before the foundation of the world those who would be delivered from bondage to sin and brought to repentance and saving faith in his son, Christ Jesus. And finally, finally, this is how it is simply summarized 
in the abstract of principles upon which Southern Seminary was founded. Article 5, election is God's eternal choice of some persons unto everlasting life, not because of foreseen merit in them, but of his mere mercy in Christ, in consequence of which choice they are called, justified, and glorified. Now, does that make the doctrine election biblical? No, (laughs) not at all. Am I quoting these confessions because um, our faith is fundamentally built on confessions as opposed to the Word of God? No. These things are articulated because they are seen to be taught in the ultimate revelation, namely the Word of God. That's what it means to be a Baptist. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian if you don't believe in that, and I want to make that very clear. Um, I think that most Christians who make it to heaven, and all will, it's pretty poor terminology, will have been, while on earth, not those who understood or embraced the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is not the gospel. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is that God, in his infinite love, provided his son to make a perfect atonement so that his justice could be satisfied with regard to our sin. And it promises this wonderful blessing that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He takes their sins and he gives them his righteousness and God declares them righteous for all eternity. The gospel is the good news that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And listen to me carefully, that's all you have to believe to get to heaven. Don't go away saying, that man said I got to believe in the doctrine of election to be saved. No. But I am saying the doctrine of election is taught in the Bible. And when I used to be disturbed about this, it helped me when finally one day I saw this concept. And if I had uh, on, the white, on the screen behind me, if I would have prepared a, a PowerPoint slide to this effect, I would put a huge circle with about a million dots in it and say those dots represent every human being who will ever live in the history of mankind before Jesus comes back, starting with Adam to the last person. And if I ask you this question, dear brothers and sisters, which of those people deserve to be saved? Deserve to be saved? You would say, none of them. If I tweaked the question and said, which of those people do you think God is obligated to save? You would pause and you would say, he's not obligated to save anyone. Is God obligated to do for all what he does for some? No. Not if all deserve damnation. We all deserve to go to hell. And God's perfect justice will be exonerated throughout eternity in the perishing of sinners in hell. But the doctrine of election goes to that circle with millions of white dot, or black dots in it and saves a number so large that, humanly speaking, we cannot calculate. And that's called election. Election doesn't get anybody Election doesn't send anybody to hell. 
Election just secures a multitude for heaven. And God is God. God is God. Am I mad about the doctrine of election? No, I am glad about the doctrine of election. I love this doctrine because no election, no salvation. Let me say it again. No election, no salvation. And God from all eternity set his affection upon a numberless people. And if you are trusting in Jesus Christ today, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 is for you, and it describes you and me as an elect exile. Elect. If everyone's elect, then everyone's going to heaven. We don't make ourselves elect. Well, that's why I had Tim read for us Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. I don't have time to take you there. But would you go back to Ephesians chapter 1 this afternoon and see when it was that God chose those Christians in Ephesus? The language was before the foundation of the world. And four times we find to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. This precious doctrine humbles us, but it exalts God. But I will ask you to look at one passage with me. Would you turn to Acts 13 and just notice one verse? In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas had been preaching in Antioch, and God blessed the preaching, and there were converts But if you'll notice verse 42, it says, As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. It's like, Paul, could we meet again next week? Would you preach for us again a week from today? Sure. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. It was a... An encouragement to persevere. The next Sabbath, okay, it's one week later, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, We are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, and he quotes from Isaiah 42. Now notice verse 48. This is the key verse. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed... As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Question, did belief come first or appointment come first? Listen to the text. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I don't want to know what that text doesn't mean. I want to know what it does mean. And I think it means this. 
that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And if you sit here this morning, dear brother and sister, as a believer, it's because in eternity past, God, out of his sovereign love, set his heart and affection upon you and put you in Christ and redeemed you by Christ and in time sent the Holy Spirit to cause you to be born again. And you came to the Savior and you came under the sprinkling and you received his righteousness and you sit here today as an elect exile by the grace of God. Does that make you mad or does that make you glad? Well, I can only say this now because I'm, I'm mindful of the time. I can only remind you that grace is the unmerited favor of God. The doctrine of election is not unjust. It's not unfair. It is loving and gracious. It doesn't preclude anyone who wants to be saved. You say, that man said that you can't be saved if you want to get saved. I didn't say anything of the kind. Anybody want to be saved today? You can be saved. You want to come to Jesus? Come to Jesus. Pastor Keith made that so clear a week ago, and he frequently does. In his wonderful pathos, he pleads because the Bible does this. And Jesus said, come unto me, all you who, are lab- who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The gospel invitation is for anyone. The only way to find out if you're one of God's elect is to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I promise you this, that if you want to be saved, you can be saved. Don't be thinking and worrying about the doctrine of election. All you have to do is listen to the gospel. Whoever, I believe in whosoever will. What? You've been preaching for 40 minutes on the doctrine of election, and now you've got the audacity to say you believe in whosoever. Yep, yep. Because the Bible teaches that. But the same Bible that teaches that precious truth teaches that it is God. Who changes the will. He, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying work up, work for. He's saying work it out. There were problems in Philippi. Work out your own salvation. Let's see the outworking of your salvation with regard to the division there. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his work. And Paul says in Romans chapter 9, so then it is not of him that willeth. What? It is not of him who wills. Romans 9, 16. But of God who shows mercy. And we get all hyped up because we want to defend the free will of man. By the way, that's the title of the sermon. I thought man's will was free. It is. But it's only free to do what it's able to do, and what it has the propensity to do. And our wills are free to do what we prefer. But tell me what your preferences were before God's grace came into your life. You can set the Lord Jesus before ungodly people. Unless God changes their will, they're going to say, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? (laughs) You think I want to become a part of that? That's crazy. And we defend the free will of man as if it was some noble thing to defend. It is true that God has given us free will, properly defined. But our wills are dictated by our nature. Listen to me. I just said something very theologically profound. Our wills are dictated in terms of their choices 
according to our nature. And that's why I never tire of using the illustration of the pig. You can wash a pig all you like and put a bow around it and put perfume on it and let it free and it'll go back to wallowing in the mire. That's why I use the illustration over and over and I know you know it. You probably anticipated I was going to go there. Starve a hungry lion for several days. Give him only water to drink and then set before him the fresh carcass of a slain lamb and a tossed salad and see what he will choose with his free will 1,000 times out of 1,000 times. He will always go for the flesh. Why? Even the high schoolers and middle schoolers know because he's a carnivore. What's a carnivore? It's a flesh eating. Put a piece of raw meat in front of a rabbit and put a, put a carrot and give him a choice. And what will he do 1,000 times out of 1,000 times with his free will? What did I say a minute ago? I said that our choices, our freedom of will, will always act in accordance with our nature. And until God changes our nature, our sinful will will never choose Christ. He acts upon our will. He changes us from the inside out. And that's what... Peter's talking about when he says God has caused you to be born again. Remember that language? It's in 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused you, caused you to be born again to a living hope. How were you born again to a living hope? God caused you to be born again. The language indicates that you and I were passive. And of course we're passive because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. A dead man doesn't choose anything. But when a dead man is brought to life, that which was acted upon was passive, but upon being acted upon becomes active. And the most beautiful illustration of that is Lazarus in the tomb. Who came out of the tomb? Lazarus. Who responded to the invitation? Lazarus, come forth. It wasn't an invitation. It was a command. Lazarus. Who responds to the gospel? We do. Well, see, that's what I believe. I believe it's up to my will. Wait a minute. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were just like Lazarus. But when the omnipotent Son of God says, Jeff Cotiller, come forth and sends omnipotent, efficacious grace into that man's soul, opening his understanding to where he sees he's a hell-bound, hell-deserving sinner, and Jesus died to pay for such sinners, and the offer is for all who come to him. That same power that opens the mind changes the will, and he flees to Jesus Christ freely. But the point is, God acts upon the will. And if we don't believe that, then at the end of the day, our testimony has to be, I made the difference. We're all, we all got the power of the will. I just chose. You mean God didn't do anything special for me? Well, he drew me, but he was drawing the guy next to me too. But so how, how come you came and he didn't? Because I chose to. So in the final analysis, you made the difference, didn't you? But no, every believer says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who caused me to be born again and I came to Jesus and I came under the sprinkling and under the atonement and all of my sins have been paid for by him and I have a perfect righteousness I have to quit
That's the salvation that Peter speaks of. But I, I do, I just want to beg for your understanding. I do hope no one is offended with me today. I didn't want to offend anybody. I'm not trying to be smart aleck, smart alecky. I'm not trying to be cheeky. I'm not trying to win by the power of persuasion. And I want to say again, if you aren't able to embrace the doctrine of election at this time because you have so many other struggles because of what you've been taught your whole life, that's okay. Just keep wrestling with it. Keep asking God, the Holy Spirit, to open your understanding. And if any of you would like to talk about this, we're happy to talk to you about it. But this is the last thing I want to say. Believing in the doctrine of election will not make you a Christian. There'll be a lot of Calvinists, former Calvinists in hell. But believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ will make you a Christian. And the gospel is that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Either in this life or the life to come, such people will look back and say, I know why I called. I sought the Lord, and afterward I learned he moved my heart to seek him. It's all of grace. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the wonderful um, sovereignty of your salvation rooted in your character. And we, we want to say today, Lord, none of us, we all agree on this, even those who don't understand or embrace or appreciate or confess the doctrine of election, we all understand this. If we're truly Christians, none of us deserve to be saved. But you were gracious toward us. We have been saved, those of us who are truly saved, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And we thank you for that. And Lord, may our lives and our testimonies reflect your glory and never, ever take glory to themselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.